Thank you very much, Pastor Matt. It is so good to be back with you. And we want to thank you for your faithfulness in prayer, in giving, and in encouragement. We feel like we're part of an A1 team. And the job can't be done without a team. God intended it to be done as a team. Today I would like to look at the topic of the importance of presence. The importance of presence. And as we look at this, I'll be using personal examples because part of our reason for coming here is to give a report to you. However, I feel the principles that we'll be looking at as we study this topic apply to all of us here, whether it be with respect to our neighbors or those with whom we work. These principles apply to all of God's children and we can put them in pra- into practice. The importance of presence. It appears to me that the predominant theme in movies is the parent, usually the father, who is torn between the demands of the job that he needs to provide for his family and the family's need for his presence. And too often the job wins out with disastrous consequences. Sadly, the same dynamic can affect missions. Our Western obsession with getting the job done as soon as possible too often shortchanges the very people that we're trying to reach. Efficiency in the form of machines and programs, films, computer technology, and so forth, if we don't watch out, can actually shortchange the very relationships that we're trying to establish using these tools. Our desire for instantaneous results pushes us to try to accomplish in a short time that which can only really be accomplished the right way through a long-term commitment. Most of the people in this world who could be reached through a quick showing of the Jesus film have already been reached. And so in order to build gospel bridges to most of the remaining unreached people, we need to come with genuine presence over an extended period of time. Perhaps the best illustration of presence in missions would be that of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 36. Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 26. Uh, I'm going to kind of skip around and emphasize certain parts of this text. The context, as many of you know, is that of Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders on a beach at Miletus. So listen as I kind of uh, skip around and read just some selections from Acts 20, 18 through 36. When they had arrived, he declared, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly, yes, and with tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews, yet I never shrank from telling you the truth either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Gentiles alike, the necessity of turning from sin and turning to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I am going to Jerusalem, drawn there irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what awaits me 
except that the Holy Spirit has told me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. Let me say plainly that I have been faithful. No one's damnation can be blamed on me, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants for you. Remember the three years I was with you? My constant watch and care over you, night and day, and my many tears for you. And I have been a constant example of how you can help the poor by working hard. When he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They wept aloud as they embraced him in farewell and sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they accompanied him down to the ship. In this touching account, we can learn four characteristics of real presence. Four characteristics of real, genuine presence. First of all, real presence takes time. However, that time should be defined more in terms of quality than quantity. We just read that Paul had been in Ephesus for three years, but in other cities he had spent less time than that. But what is important is that whatever the quantity of time that Paul spent, whatever the time period, he spent that time truly touching and impacting people's lives for Christ. He was there long enough for them both to hear the good news and to see him live it out in his own daily life, right down to the nitty-gritty of working hard with his hands in order to provide for his needs. We found we must reverse this order a little bit with the Fulani Muslims. We must first deal with them with absolute integrity. We must seek to build relationships of confidence with them before they will ever listen to us when we tell them the good news. Establishing the necessary track record of credibility takes time. It can't be done in an instant. But just, just letting the clock tick alone won't do the trick. As it ticks, we must be investing to build trust. As it ticks, we must be loving them. We must be showing kindness to them in order to build relationships. Jan has tried to do this by serving as the Fulani's advocate at the hospital, helping them to navigate what is for them an unfamiliar turf, serving as a go-between when they have misunderstandings with the National Hospital staff, and providing both food and a kind touch when necessary. And this then opens the door on the basis of the trust that is built in this way. It opens the door to share the good news with them. Secondly, real presence means sharing in the target people's sufferings. You'll notice here that Paul mentioned tears, trials, plots, suffering, jail, and even death. Because you'll recall, he mentioned that they wouldn't see him again. We don't seek out suffering, but God promises us that we will experience it. We'll experience it sometimes for our own good, and we'll experience it other times for the good of the people to whom He sent us. 
In the part of Africa in which we work, any missionary who stays for a good length of time will be robbed, will be harassed by government officials, often at road barriers, in their attempt to extort money, and will get both malaria and intestinal parasites. And it's likely that he'll also experience having to evacuate his home on a moment's notice due to civil unrest, or being completely looted, or finding himself literally caught in some live crossfire. Such has been true for us, as well as those colleagues with whom we've worked over the long haul. Just before returning to the States, we attempted to help a Fulani woman with her belongings. What had happened is she had brought her belongings to our colleagues, the Danforce, to store so they wouldn't be stolen by a militia. Later, she was able to escape and cross over to Cameroon and rent a house there and get set up. And when she got set up, she wanted her things that were stored with the Danforce. And so she let us know that she would like us to bring the things over. We knew it could be problematic, but normally we didn't have trouble on the CAR side of the river with these kind of things. And so we loaded all of her belongings into a pickup truck. And this pickup truck had a covering with a, with a tarp over it. And so all the belongings were concealed. But in Africa, there are few secrets. And of course, the truck couldn't be loaded in private. And so someone was a traitor and called ahead by cell phone and informed the horrible Antibalaka militia that we were coming with this lady's goods. Now, the Antibalaka had nothing against us personally. We weren't their targets. But the Fulani were. And they were unhappy that we were helping the Fulani. And so when we arrived in town on our way to the Cameroon border, all of a sudden this militia surrounded us. They were shooting their guns up in the air and so forth. And to make a long story short, they held us and harassed us for two hours. They would sometimes sneak up behind us, put the gun like this right behind our head, and then fire it up in the air in order to intimidate us. And they swarmed all over the truck, caved in the, the top of it, cut the Bosch, uh, that means tarp, and stole all of this, all of, uh, this lady's uh, belongings. An interesting little side incident that occurred is when, they, when the door of the truck was opened, some of the literature, such as Jan has placed on the table back there, this Ajamiya literature, that means it is the Bible in the Fulani language written in Arabic script, fell down onto the ground. And of course, this anti-Balaka militia man, he saw it, and he saw that it was Arabic. And so it represented Islam to him. And so he took his gun and he was going to shoot it. And our colleague Alida Danfor says, no, no, don't shoot that. That's the Word of God in their language. And he refrained from shooting it. But uh, when this incident was over and we got together as a group of missionaries again, we suddenly realized that we had had the awesome privilege of sharing in what the Fulani have suffered so often around us. The Fulani truly know now that we've been there and we've done that with them. We've entered into their lives and we've tasted that which so often they've had to taste. Later when we visited uh, Hawa, because that was this lady's name, at her place of exile in Kenzu, 
we started recounting, you know, rehearsing both the good and the bad experiences that we've shared together. And at times we were just laughing outrageously, and at other times we were all sharing tears of sorrow together. And it opened the door for us to speak of salvation through grace in Christ. You see, that door was opened wide, partly because we had suffered along with her, and we had suffered for her. Our Lord Himself prayed to avoid suffering. I would never advocate that we pray, that we ask God, Lord, I'd like a dose of suffering today. However, like our Lord, we can use suffering. We can use it when it comes in sort of a 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 type fashion to identify with those to whom the Lord sends us, in particular, those who are suffering in the same way that we've suffered. To put a face on that, I lost my father when I was 19. And so to this day, I'm able to put my hand around the shoulders of young men who lose their fathers when they're still young and comfort them because I've been there and experienced the same thing that they're experiencing. You see, the language of shared suffering is powerful. Thirdly, real presence implies building relationships. Paul's language here is absolutely saturated with intimacy. Remember the three years I was with you. My constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. They wept aloud as they embraced him in farewell, sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. This past term, we had three Swedish short-term girls come out. And we set things up for them so that they spent the first three months of their stay in an intensive crash course of the Sango language. But throughout the time, even when they were still learning the language, those three girls would go out and walk in the village. They would go to the hospital. And none of them were nurses, none of them were medical people, but they would do flunky jobs at the hospital to help the national nurses and and doctors there. And all the time... They were rubbing elbows with the people. Once a typical Western workaholic who will remain nameless came up to me and grumbled and he said, Kim, what are these girls doing anyway? What are they accomplishing? You see, he wanted to see something concrete. He wanted to see something he could measure. He wanted to see something he could photograph. I kind of know what he wanted. He wanted to see some things painted. Well, on the day those three girls left, a crowd assembled. A whole lot of people came. And all of them were crying. Some of them were weeping aloud. The three girls were crying. Well, when our friend our friend who grumbled about what these girls were doing, on the day that he leaves, I can assure you, no one will have a tear in their eyes. You see, though they were only there six months, though these three girls had just graduated from high school, they weren't really trained. They totally nailed down the biblical concept of presence. And in the process, they taught me a missiological lesson that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Time is a component of presence. 
However, in order for presence to be real, that time must include true communication. Not just being there physically, but connecting heart to heart like Paul connected with these Ephesians. True heart rather than just physical presence. Those girls had sweat blood in order to learn the Sangha language that would enable them to communicate with these people. But above all, they spent time. They gave of themselves. They went to where the people were. They did the things the people did. Like having the people tie their hair up in those rope type uh, uh, hair things that they have. That takes hours and hours. But think of the opportunity for speaking and communicating in a heart-to-heart fashion. You see, in the African way, they valued presence. They valued being more than the accomplishment of tasks. Fourthly, real presence seeks to share the good news. We'd run out of time if I tried to go over all that Paul said to the Ephesian elders here about sharing God's truth with them. But here's, here's just a few examples. I never shrank from telling you the truth, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Gentiles alike, the necessity of turning from sin and turning to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. You see, the principle is this. Above all, true presence gets us close enough to the people so that what matters most in our lives can rub off on them. And that's what was happening here with Paul. What counted for Paul more than anything was the good news about Jesus Christ. And when he got close to them, automatically that had to rub off on them. Both because of what he said to them and because of the way he lived his life. One of our tasks is to mentor national missionaries. And where we worked, there were two uh, Bantu people that were national missionaries to the Fulani as well. And Boniface was one of these. And after the Fulani had been ethnically cleansed from the Central African Republic, after they had all had to flee over to Cameroon, his national church leadership came to him and said, by the way, in the light of the existing circumstances, we have shut down our ministry to Muslims. Now, the... The option that I would have preferred is that they go after those Muslims in the next country. But they chose to shut down their ministry to Muslims. And as an aside, they told him, you no longer have a job. That means you no longer have a salary. We'd suggest that you go down the road a piece and take a small church that's there and they can pay your salary. Now, one thing that makes Boniface so good with the Fulani is that he's quiet and reserved and timid. His way matches theirs. And he's dynamite with them because of that. But it astounded us. We didn't expect this timid, quiet, reserved man to reply to his church leadership as he did. But very graciously and very respectfully, he said to to them, Please excuse me, but you don't understand. My calling to go to these Fulani comes from God, and I can't stop even if my salary stops. 
And so he said, I'm going to cross the river over into Cameroon. I'm going to build a house there with my own hands, and I'm going to keep on working with the very same people that I was working with here in the Central African Republic. And he's already done that. Did he see something in our missionary team to the Fulani? Was he infected with our passion for reaching these people for Christ, for sharing the good news with them? Did presence enable him to see a mission field where all that his national leadership could see was a security threat? Our strategy of reaching the Fulani is extremely simple, and we didn't come with it ourselves. We learned it from some other missionaries uh, who were speaking in Florida, and we heard them. And it's this. It's to build bridges of trust strong enough to carry the weight of truth. Real presence is the tool that we want to use to build those bridges. Through presence, we've invested heavily in building relational bridges. Those Fulani that we've touched, they may not be able to return to the Central African Republic. Given the trauma that they've experienced, it would take a miracle of God for them to return to CAR before we return. Right now, there are hate-ridden anti-Balaka militia in the country that would kill any Fulani that set foot there instantly. Consequently, our desire is to follow the example of the national colleague that I just spoke of and to move from CAR to Cameroon to be able to keep on working with these same people, to be able to take advantage of bridges that we've already built to walk across them carrying the good news to these people. You know, shortcuts are so appealing to us as Westerners. We seek instant fixes to our problems through technology, scientific methodology, and the power of the euro or the dollar. However, I don't think over all these years that our Lord has changed his modus operandi at all. In Philippians chapter 2, we see how much our Lord invested, the infinite price that he paid in order to really be present with us here below. The incarnation is a theological term that describes Christmas or Christ's presence with us here. You'll recall that one of his names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, in a way, is the ultimate missionary because he crossed the greatest cross-cultural divide in order to come here and really and truly be with us, to undergo firsthand with us all the things that we experience here. Have you ever wondered how many years did he plane how many boards in that humble carpenter shop in order to really be with us here? If we, tr- if we seek to truly imitate Him, we must do likewise in order to reach the lost world surrounding us. We can't just pop in and pop out. We can't just go physically and leave our hearts behind. We can't make our security an idol. We must be willing to lose our lives so that others can gain eternal life. We can't demand a certain threshold of lifestyle. Rather, Part of our going has to be the act of truly being there, communicating at the heart level, suffering along with the locals, the power cuts, 
the water shortages, impassable roads, lack of supplies, and even the dangers of civil unrest. And finally, sharing with them what matters most, that they are hell-bound sinners. Forgive my directness, but Paul used an even stronger term than that. Though they are indeed hell-bound, the good news is this, by faith in Jesus Christ and all that He did for them on the cross, they may have eternal life and they may become God's children and simultaneously our brothers and sisters. Presence is indeed both costly and painful. However, it brings fantastic joy, both for now and for eternity. Where has God put each of you? I believe that He strategically sprinkles His children into all walks of life. He wants to have His ambassadors, His representatives everywhere. And so He sends dentists to other dentists, factory workers to their peers, soldiers to other military personnel, and farmers to other farmers. We, we had an interesting experience shortly after we came home. We went to visit some close friends of ours who live in a gated community uh, on an 18-hole golf course. Uh, a lot of their houses have, have windows almost as big as the whole back end of the church back there. And, and TVs with screens that are taller than I am. When you go to the country club there, you don't park your own car. You give the keys to somebody else and he parks it for you. And the man's bicycle, he was talking to me about insuring his bicycle. And, and he got kind of a blank, a dumb look out of me. And he went out and he said, well, I, I ought to tell you, it costs this much. And it was more than the value of both of my cars put together. But you see, God has a purpose in all this. This, this isn't an accident. These folks are God's ambassadors to people that I would never know how to reach. The wealthy need to hear the good news too. You know, I, I know how to eat uh, caterpillars and, and palm grubs and so forth, but I'm all thumbs and as awkward as can be in the unfamiliar environment of a country club. But these friends know how to navigate it with grace and ease for the glory of God. That's God's genius. That's God's wisdom. He's got His people absolutely everywhere in order to tell others what Jesus Christ has done for them. Each of us is placed in a unique situation. Don't ever, don't ever discredit your situation. Don't ever devalue it. But realize that it's God's opportunity, it's God's sovereignty, it's God's providence that put you in that place so that you could touch people that perhaps nobody else would be able to touch. You're going to have opportunities where you are that we won't where we are and vice versa. May God enable each of us to really be present where He has placed us. You see, the Great Commission isn't just about going. But the Great Commission is about really being and really staying where God sends us. May we use the opportunities that He's given us to build bridges of trust. And may we use these to bring the good news of everlasting life in Jesus Christ to a lost world. And may we truly be present.
where God has strategically put us as His salt and light to a world that is rocked by sin, Satan, and death. Oh Lord, we realize that the task that You've assigned to us, the task to be Your ambassadors, the task to be incarnationally present in a lost world so that both what we say with our lips and what we do with our lives will represent you is too big for us. But Lord, we want to thank you that you sent your spirit to live in each of us, to empower us, to enable us to do as these Swedish girls did. They weren't trained, Lord. They weren't experienced. But they loved you and they loved the people to whom they were sent and they were truly present where you put them, reflecting your Son where you put them. Oh Lord, I thank you for this assembly here. I thank you for the strategic position that they, oper- that they occupy. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one here to recognize his high standing as your ambassador, the one that you have sent to people that perhaps no one else can reach. And so, Lord, like Paul, we pray that you would help us to be good representatives. May our lives be a reflection of your grace to all those around us. We ask this because we need your enablement. Amen.